listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, we want to thank you for listening to the Inside Mental Health podcast. We're always striving to bring you the best content, so we'd like to invite you to share your thoughts with us by completing a short survey. Go to psychcentral.com slash survey40 to complete it now. Everyone who completes the survey will have the chance to win one of five $50 Amazon gift cards. This is a great opportunity for you to give us feedback and for us to learn more about all of you. We cannot wait to hear from you. Again, to take the survey, go to psychcentral.com slash survey40. Void were prohibited by law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and I want to quickly thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. You can get a week free by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Calling into the show today, we have Yolo Akili Robinson. Mr. Robinson is an award-winning writer, healing justice worker, yogi, and the founder and executive director of BEAM, Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. He is also the author of the social justice-themed affirmation book, Dear Universe, Letters of Affirmation and Empowerment for All of Us. Most recently, he has an essay featured in Tarana Burke and Dr. Brene Brown's latest anthology, You Are Your Best Thing. Mr. Robinson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, as a white male, my understanding of how mental health issues impact the black community is limited at best. Would it be okay if we started off with an explanation of how to approach mental health in black communities? Absolutely. It's a great place to start. So to talk about approaching the concept of mental health in black communities, particularly from the perspective that Beam takes, um, we use a framework we call healing justice. Healing justice essentially believe that in order for our communities to heal, we have to consider the historical, ancestral, spiritual, emotional context and political context of how our traumas happen, but also how healing can happen. So with that being said, I think it's important when we talk about Black mental health to begin to understand the roots of what we now know as mental health, our Western mental health. We have to really take a little bit of a time warp and go back and look at the roots of how our current kind of um, understanding of mental health, which used to be called mental hygiene, is really informed by this kind of really deep-seated pathology, often rooted in a pathology that was more about helping people produce, and that people who were not efficient producers were the folks who were labeled as mentally ill, and how that particular legacy is also deeply connected to racism and sexism, particularly for Black folks in this country who um, were subject to a variety of different harm under the, the context of the medical industrial complex, but often, of course, in the, in the history of psychology and Western mental health, were considered not capable of having mental illness because mental illness was considered to be something that was a consequence of a, a higher consciousness, a cognitive function, right? And so Africans and people of African descent, our brains were thought to be smaller. I share those pieces because it's really important to hold racism and ableism in the history of mental health because it'll give us context as to why our communities now are so hesitant and reticent around the framework. There's a very interesting quote on your website that I'd like to discuss for a moment, and I'm going to read it verbatim. Beam realized that we could not in good confidence teach Black folks about mental health without addressing the legacy of harm inflicted on Black bodies historically through psychiatry and psychology. 
We also could not teach mental health without helping our communities expand and create models of care beyond traditional mental health systems. This is really tough, right? Because it leaves me wondering what the best choice is. How have you managed to wrap all of this understanding into a path forward? Yeah. So first off, there's a variety of different ways in which we approach addressing mental health. And so one is we try to give people the tools and skills to advocate for themselves when navigating these systems. Um, We recognize that when Black folks go into, whether it's psychiatric care or any kind of medical care, that the bias, the deeply embedded biases in this country, racism, sexism, misogyny, go with them. So when we talk about, like, you know, Black folks going to uh, get psychiatric care and not being monitored um, in the same way that white folks are, are monitored in terms of their dosing, right? Like, you know, not even being monitored by the psychiatrist. We talked about the ways in which the disproportionate diagnoses, that Black folks are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia as opposed to bipolar, right? And often receive misdiagnoses. And so it's not about saying don't get care, but it is about how do we engage the system with the understanding that unfortunately, a lot of the parts of the system have not always centered the interests of Black folks and are not deeply aware of the racism and sexism and misogyny and the transphobia that inform how they approach care. And so it's one part of this holding that and giving people tools and skills. And a lot of our folks already uh, have these skills and tools already because we've had to navigate them for so long. So we have insight about how we're going to be perceived by white doctors, how people are going to think about when I show up in my Black body with this condition. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is when it talks about developing other systems of care, we talk about um, building out the fact that, you know, in many parts of this country, if you call for a mental health crisis, you're going to get the police to come to your home. And we have so many examples. Corinne Gaines is one. But many examples of when Black people were going through a mental health crisis and the police were called, they ended up dead or they ended up severely harmed. Because unfortunately, those two systems are intertwined and the police don't always have skills or tools or strategies to really de-escalate a mental health crisis without the use of violence and harm. And so when we talk about other systems, we think about what would it look like? And we already have models of this that exist in many parts of the country where when someone's in a mental health crisis, the police don't arrive because too often, too many of the um, folks in our community talk about how when they went to uh, check themselves into for psychiatric care, they were like, this is indistinguishable from a prison. Why are the institutions in our country that are supposed to support people who are mentally um, in distress, why are they designed like prison? Why are the people treated as if they did something bad or wrong for existing? There is a need for us to reimagine mental health care not only Black folks will benefit from this, but all of us will benefit when we create and construct new systems. I will say that piece. It's not about discouraging people from getting care. It's about giving them practical reality of what happens when you go into these systems. It's also about helping us reimagine the systems that we have developed as well. At the beginning of this episode, you spoke briefly about a concept called healing justice. Healing justice is a framework that was really created by Kara Page and the Kindred Healing Justice Collective. So this framework comes out of the work of mostly Black, Latinx, Asian, disabled, queer, and trans folks who are really trying to move beyond the Western model that often suggests that pick one person out of their community and you take them to therapy and that somehow that alone is going to be enough for the transformation of their mental health. In order for our communities to be well, we have to transform the systems that we live in. We have to interrogate the legacy of untreated trauma for our folks. We have to change systems of incarceration to the prison industrial complex, systems um, of low wages, of lack of access to care. We have to look at the entire model and really of, of the country 
and see that like changing that is a mental health intervention, that it has to be community and systemic level healing for a new world to be possible, right? It really turns our challenges, a lot of the concepts that are kind of inherent in some of the Western medicine kind of approaches, they really tend to like divorce or minimize racism, massage noir, transphobia as the really powerful and omnipotent structural and psychological forces they are. They really impede upon our everyday mental health. Healing justice is really, the, it's like a lens into looking at the world, the real issues. Like, so for example, if I am a Black queer person in this country, a mental health intervention for our community, me or my community, might be multiple things, right? It might be getting access to clean water, which we know many Black communities do not have. It may be also when Black Lives Matters and different activists are shutting down bridges because of police brutality. That's a mental health intervention. It's saying, guess what? This is creating so much distress and trauma for our communities, and we need to do everything necessary to let you see that until you see that so this can stop. So it's not just about individualized care. While that is an important piece of it, of course, the psychological and the behavioral, but it's also about the systemic pieces as well, and we have to address those alongside each other for our community to really cultivate wellness. Mr. Robinson, as the executive director of BEAM, can you explain what role healing justice plays in the work that your organization does? BEAM is a national training, movement building, and grant making institution dedicated to the healing, wellness, and liberation of Black and marginalized communities. Our work really falls in three buckets. The first bucket is training and peer support. Um, We are primarily a training institution. Our work is built on the premise that we just can't rely on social workers and therapists for our communities to heal. Um, We need everybody in the village or everyone in our communities to have tools and skills to respond to mental health crises, but also tools and skills to help cultivate everyday wellness in their lives. And so a lot of our training and our peer support program, which is now called Black Mental Health and Healing Justice, that peer support program really trains stylists, barbers, activists, parents, coaches, teachers, pastors, who in our communities tend to be on the front lines of responding to mental health distress or potentially helping to uh, support people who may be on the path to mental distress. Recognizing when those folks have more skills and tools and knowledge to support our communities, as well as the discernment to be able to see that someone needs broader psychological intervention, that our communities can be overall well and can cultivate wellness collectively as opposed to relying on a select professional class of people to understand these concepts. So a story that I often tell is one of one advocate who shared a story about you know, living with bipolar, getting the diagnosis, and her faith community and her family telling her it wasn't real. And for years, struggling because she believed that. And then one day sitting down with her stylist, getting her hair done, and topic of mental health comes up. And she shares that, you know, I once got this diagnosis, but I don't believe in it. You know, I have my faith, et cetera. Silas responded to her by saying, I hear that. I hear that about your faith, believer. I'm a Christian, too. And I also know that bipolar is real. And let me tell you what I know from my own family members. Let me tell you about somebody I actually know who's a therapist who comes through here. She talks about how that moment changed her life. The second piece is our grant making, in which we give out money, our support, resources, and efforts across the country. The first one is our Black Parent Support Fund. We um, give economic as well as other resources to Black parents who are living with mental conditions or supporting children living with mental conditions. 
particularly during the pandemic, we have been especially concerned about folks in our network who are navigating being in closed quarters with their children or themselves and their conditions and not being able to have other traditional coping strategies. And so we give them economic resources as well as access to other educational materials to support them. We also have a Southern Healing Support Fund, which gives money and resources to Black folks who are living in the South who are doing innovative wellness work. And then last but not least, we have a Black Wellness Innovation Fund, um, which really is about funding innovative strategies in Black communities around mental health, everything from building more peer support circles to building out mental health literacy to developing alternative crisis response to the police. That is a big part of our work. But we also work with organizations and many grassroots movements to kind of like build power and help address these other systemic and structural issues. That's kind of the short version, not so short, of what we do and how we take it in terms of healing justice. We are very mindful that when we say Black communities, we are not monolithic, that Black means people of African descent, people who are African across the world. And we have people from everywhere from Soweto to um, Vancouver, Canada, who come to our virtual programs and are part of our virtual community, which we love. But we're also clearly like, you know, we named it um, queer and trans and, and um, folks are also central to our communities. And so we try to create programming that doesn't assume heterosexuality or doesn't assume certain cognitive capacity, but really is able to engage people wherever they are and help them feel included wherever they are in the training and education and resources that we create. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know managing my mental health and a busy recording schedule seemed impossible until I found BetterHelp Online Therapy. They can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Just visit betterhelp.com slash psychcentral to save 10% and get a week free. That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash psych central. Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Hey everyone, my name is Rachel Star Withers and I live with schizophrenia. I'm also the host of Inside Schizophrenia, a podcast that dives deep into all things schizophrenia, featuring personal experiences and experts to help you better understand and navigate schizophrenia. Inside Schizophrenia is a Psych Central and Healthline Media podcast, and we're available right now on your favorite podcast player. Check us out. And we're back with Yolo Akili Robinson discussing mental health in the Black community. Mr. Robinson, let's stay on peer support for a moment. What is the premise of the peer support model? And then specifically, how does that model apply to the Black community? Well, you know, I always tell people that peer support, of course, is nothing new in the United States or the world. Often in the West, peer support is often traced to, I believe it's like 17th century uh, France or various different places, often in European history, talking about, you know, patients supporting patients. Well, I'll tell you one thing I don't trace for the United States. I don't trace Black people's legacy of peer support or the concept of peer support to those institutions. I don't trace the 1970s self-help movement. I think for Black people, we trace our first cultivation of what we call peer support to really the time in which we landed here during our enslavement. And why I do that is because I think we have yet to interrogate the dimension of psychological and emotional support that had to be necessary for the Black folks, African folks who landed here to discern what was going on to support themselves and the people they were with to survive 
this desolate and destructive and violent landscape that they entered into under American enslavement? What does it mean for crying and support and not speaking the language? What does it mean for emotional support? And so I trace that like our legacy of peer support really starts there because we had to build up communities of care and villages of care to get through that. And the fact that I am here is evidence that somehow something in us learned how to heal, learned how to thrive, learned how to create collective care and peer support. And when it comes to our concept of peer support, it's just what I shared earlier. It's about village care. It's about the village has heightened understanding of mental health and wellness and is able to cultivate spaces and communities that center healing. And that is a radical intervention that grasps it at the root, as opposed to, once again, focusing on an elite class of individuals who have select knowledge and no one else has access to who don't share that knowledge. And so it's like, once again, it's not about getting rid of therapists and psychologists. We're always going to need those level dimensions of professionals and people who are educated and well in those pieces. But we also can bolster and lift up the mental health literacy of our folks. We can lift up the education so that we know more, so that we can advocate more for ourselves. That's a big part of our peer support is building those communities of care and uplifting them. In the interest of full disclosure, I'm a certified peer supporter in the state of Ohio, and I happen to know that many peer supporters look at their work as the way to help heal the traumas from their own past and their own journeys. But I'm also keenly aware that the work itself can reactivate that trauma. How does your organization deal with that? So a part of our training that we take people through is a recognition that, once again, we do talk about you know, counter-transference and being activated, as I like to use the language of, that, of course, when you are supporting people who are in distress, there'll be moments in which you will be activated potentially by their distress. It may awaken an experience that you've had in the past. It may lead you to engage in something, like engage in something emotionally that you weren't prepared to engage in. And giving them ongoing tools and strategies to be able to discern when that's happening and how to actually enforce a boundary and get other support to fill in the places where you're not able to show up in. Again, when you have a village, the village means that there are multiple people who are present who can fill in where you can't fill in. And so when we have to do one tool on our website called the Community Care Map, and we're always intentional with people. We tell them all the time, you can't be the superhero for everybody. People need wrap around systems of care. So who are the people who can support this person or support you beyond just one person so that when you are activated, when you are no longer at capacity, when you are at your compassion fatigue, that you actually are able to like call on other people, hopefully, to help support that person or support yourself in those moments. I think that's so important. I mean, we're activated all the time in this kind of cultural moment, right? Where we turn on the television, turn on our Twitter, you know, everything is so increasingly sensationalized, I would say. And sometimes we're increasingly aware of just the nature of how deeply embedded into the fabric of this country violence and harm are very important to make sure that peer support folks or anybody doing care and wellness work really um, develop skills to practice discernment as much as possible and enforce boundaries in the context of collective care. Mr. Robinson, one of the things that I'm thinking about is the phrase cultural competency. We've heard a lot about that from the media, but your group takes it a bit further and talks about social justice-informed mental health literacy. Is this just an extension of cultural competency, or how does it go further? Yeah, I appreciate that. You can just call me Yolo as well. Oh, thank you, Yolo. Cultural competency for us is just a little bit like, hmm, we're not sure if you ever really become competent in someone else's cultural experience. And so cultural competency and social justice and mental health literacy, not necessarily 
super connected. I think about cultural competency and cultural humility being connected, and we definitely think cultural humility is a good framework where it really encourages us to understand that we will never have confidence in someone's culture and that we need to learn to practice the skills of listening, being a constant state of perpetual unlearning as well as learning and being willing to be wrong and acknowledge that like when they do come up like that and take with efforts and behaviors to move forward to actually address those harms. Cultural humility for me over cultural competency. Social justice and foreign mental health literacy was really just our response to kind of what in this country has become mental health literacy. Much of the peer support programs and education that we see in this country does not have an element of social justice to it, does not talk about the history of the DSM, the history of the ways in which Black people and women and queer and trans folks have been treated by the psychiatric and uh, mental health industrial complex. It doesn't take into consideration the fact that none of us based off our different identities, can engage these institutions even differently, right? And so we had to build a framework that was like under the umbrella of healing justice that was saying, hey, our mental health education has to be grounded and realistic. It cannot be divorced from the political social context because our people are not going to respond to that. We're not going to talk about uh, mental health if you're not willing to talk about the fact that the first time I learned about mental health was when a social worker took away my cousin because of some um, mental condition, and they ended up being in prison as opposed to being in care. So we don't talk about those things. We're not having conversations in our communities. And so social justice and mental health literacy is really saying, this is what we need. We need skills, we need tools, and we need to kind of uh, focus on the political and social context when we do that to make sure our people are getting what they need to be safe and supported, but also to be um, grounded and rooted as well. Yolo, I, I'm thinking about stigma and discrimination just a lot right now because there's there's stigma and discrimination toward the black community. There's stigma and discrimination toward the mental health community. It's just a lot to deal with. How does the stigma and discrimination against mental illness manifest specifically in the black community? And, and how does it affect your work? You know, one of our core concepts that we teach in any of our trainings is this idea of we all have internalized isms. And so let me explain a little bit what that means. We, in our programs, we don't ask the question, are you racist, sexist, or transphobic? Are ableist? Or do you have mental health stigma? We don't ask that question. We think it's a silly question because we don't believe that any of us are exempt from having internalized these forces that deeply inform the nature of our reality from the media to our schools to um, everything. And so the question we think is more useful is, where is the racism and sexism and homophobia and the mental health stigma that you have learned all your life living in this culture? Where is it showing up in your ideas, behaviors, and choices? Asking from a place of not judgment and condemnation, but curiosity. Where is it? Because we're not asking if it's there. I know for myself, I'm 39 years old, lived in a body, been perceived as a male all my life, in a world that is deeply misogynistic, that has deeply, deep hatred towards women that shows up in systems and structures and media and a variety of different other mechanisms. So I can live my 39 years in my body and this body that's privileged in relationship to many women and for a variety of different things. And I can have all the best politics in the world, but the reality is um, in some ways, those ideas are going to seep into my consciousness and into my behaviors. Curious thing is like, where is it and how did it show up? Same thing for mental health. When we think about the history of mental health, particularly in Black communities, or even just in American communities, what we've seen in the media, you know, from civil to other kind of representations that are often not then humanizing, 
those things inform our, how we think about mental health. And that means that like they will inform how we're able to offer peer support or how we talk about mental health or how we talk to ourselves when we are living with conditions. And so it's really important for us to unpack that and to make sure it's clear for all of our participants of our programs, hey, you have mental health stigma internalized. I don't care if you're living with bipolar. I don't care if you had family all your life, the XYZ. This country is deeply ableist and deeply committed to this idea of normal, right? As opposed to neurocognitive diversity, this commitment to this idea of normal. And normal often tends to be white and cisgender and man and functioning a specific kind of way. And giving people the opportunity to kind of like engage that question and begin to interrogate what that shows up in their lives hopefully helps them facilitate more consciousness of that so they don't, so it doesn't show up in their behavior and their ideas and their choices. Or when it does, they're able to redirect, take responsibility for that and hopefully address any harm. It's not an easy thing. Many people who come to our programs are, you know, have formal diagnosis, even though diagnosis is a privilege, particularly for in this country for Black folks, because many of us are not going to get access to care to get a diagnosis, or we're going to get misdiagnosis. It's really important to hold that and to continue to interrogate that. And we get a lot of pushback, you know, because we're very unapologetic about lifting up the voices of Black people living with bipolar, of Black people living with borderline, of Black people living with schizophrenia. Not just the ones that are kind of more comfortable for the mainstream conversations right now, which are often depression and anxiety. They are more common, completely understandable, but even the way we discuss them tends not always dive into the depths of complications and not always dive into some of the most stigmatized conditions in this country, which tend to be like the personality disorders and bipolar and schizophrenia. So that's a little bit how, how we handle it. Yolo, do you believe a better world is possible or are we just stuck this way? I guess the one thing I would like to say and leave people with is that really another world is possible. If we decide that we want to center healing in our world, how that can transform our schools, how that will transform the way we work, how that will transform the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the earth, all these different pieces. And I think that for me, at least, is a big part of what healing justice is calling us to do. It's calling us to take care of folks who show up in a variety of different neurocognitive differences, but care for them in a way that is not centered on pathology and criminalization, but centered on care. And I really believe the healing justice is one useful framework and um, tool to help us get closer to the possibility of that world. And I encourage everyone listening to think about how your life could change if you centered healing in relationship to yourself or to the world or to the system that you are part of. And just know that our healing can look so much more radical and more loving then what we have been sold is the only opportunity for healing. So just um, be open and continue your path and do your work and, and struggle and love and do those things, but know that another world is possible. YOLO, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. It's enlightening and it's an important discussion and it's one that I, I wish could continue. Where can folks find you and your organization, BEAM, online? So you can go to our website, which is BEAM. B-E-A-M dot community. We are a dot community. No, no dot com is there. Just beam dot community. You can also find us on Instagram at, at underscore beam org. Definitely if you check out our website, there are tools and resources there, tools you can download and share and discuss and engage with with your community. YOLO, thanks again for being here. And to all of our listeners, thank you for being here. Wherever you downloaded the show, follow, subscribe. It's absolutely free and it will ensure that you don't miss any upcoming episodes. 
My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, as well as a nationally recognized public speaker. And I think that it would be awesome to be at your next event. You can grab a signed copy of my book with free swag or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.